After 32 years, I came out of the closet as a gay Christian pastor. Finally, on the outside of that suffocating prison, I'm looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. It's not enough to become informed. We have to do something about the harm we're still witnessing within systems and spaces we've been loyal to for so long. It's time we become reformers. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show, Confessions of Reformer. Uh, I've got a special guest here with me today. I'm very excited to introduce this man to you. Um, I found out about him, actually, so I had come out publicly and people continued to suggest David's book, Changing Our Minds. And I was like, who is this David Gushy? Who's David P. Gushy? Why does he keep coming up? So eventually I got his book and read it, but it was like after I'd done a bulk of my own coming out journey. So David P. Gushy wrote Changing Our Minds. He was a very well-respected Baptist evangelical leader, specifically an ethicist, and then came out defending the queer community. And, you know, like everyone who's done that, experienced a ton of fallout. David, would you care to say hi and just let us know who you are in your world from your perspective? Because obviously I have a very specific lens of who you are. Well, sure, Mike. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, I am David Gushy. And um, I... Uh, I became a evangelical Christian in high school through a conversion experience. I was actually raised Catholic, mm. um, and I um, uh, the specific context was Southern Baptist in Northern Virginia. So I was a born again, on fire for the Lord, Southern Baptist convert, and um, I pursued everything that one does with that. You know, uh, I was in church every time the doors were open, which was a lot. Um, and, um, learn the Bible in the way that Baptist taught it. I was, um, so fired up, so, so clear that I had discovered the most important thing in the world that I, I felt called to ministry within about six months of my conversion. And I end up as an ordained Baptist pastor served in a variety of churches in youth ministry and, uh, in pastoral ministry, though my full-time gig is as a professor of Christian ethics. Uh, after I finished my seminary degree, I, I felt like I had discovered a discipline that I really loved called Christian ethics and that I needed to learn more in that and that the academic life needed to be layered on top of the ministry life, you know. So there I diverged and I went to Union Seminary in New York, which is, is a, a very progressive school and um, got a PhD in Christian ethics. So for 30 years, exactly, I've been teaching and writing in Christian ethics. Even though that school was pretty liberal, my own identity was more um, uh, center, center left uh, evangelical. Kind of, they used to be, there used to be such a thing, center left evangelicals. Um, they were never the majority, but they were out there. Um, so I, I taught uh, for 14 years in conservative Southern Baptist schools. And then I moved here to Atlanta to begin teaching at uh, Mercer University, which is a formerly Georgia Baptist school, um, but it's a freer school. Well, in fact, it's a school committed to academic freedom and it still carries the values of its heritage, but not some of the restrictions. Um, so seven years after moving here in 2007, I felt strongly compelled that it was time for me to exercise my my voice as an ethicist to take on the LGBT question, which I had never really addressed. 
I had I had built quite a reputation by 2014, kind of wherever evangelical thought leaders were gathering, I was usually in the room. I wrote a number of books that were pretty widely used. Um, but but you know, I felt like I maybe was ducking the issue that everybody needed to talk about. And a lot of people who um a lot of people who maybe were had thought about the issue a lot more than I had. Uh, were afraid to say anything because it was going to cost them their jobs. Um, so I just decided to 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 write a series of articles for my Baptist uh, newspaper column that I had, and these articles ended up adding up to a book. And the book was called "Changing Our Mind," which came out in the fall of 2014. It blew up like a bomb. Um, it both. Uh, I mean, I would say it was the major statement on LGBT inclusion by a by an evangelical intellect intellectual uh, of that time, and um, so it it evoked. Um, I mean, in the book, I basically take the question from the ground up and finally conclude that um, not only not only is the anti or exclusionary position um not clearly taught by scripture it's it's clearly harmful and um that it violates the more central moral norms of the christian faith like justice and love and dignity um and that it creates harm across the board uh and but the way i got there was sufficiently step by step and sufficiently biblical that a lot of people who who came out of evangelical backgrounds were able to hear what I did in the book in a way that they couldn't if it came from like a like a real liberal voice or 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 frankly if it came from uh an LGBTQ author I'm a straight married you know person of a certain age um who had a pedigree and knew how to talk to church going folks in the evangelical world mm. so bottom line it is a book that is handed person to person, pastor to pastor, pastor to parents, to LGBT young people. Um, it's been translated in a bunch of languages. It's all around the world. But of course, the fallout for me was, you're a heretic, you're going to hell, you're a false teacher, we're going to disinvite you from this and cut you out of that. And, uh, you know, how dare you even consider saying that? If you'll renounce, maybe we'll let you back and you know no way you know um and the other fallout was i discovered just how many and how profound are the harms in other words i knew in a small way how bad the harms were but it was when i heard from the people themselves who said oh maybe maybe you can be a pastor i can talk to or maybe you can help me help me think about how to relate to my parents who have rejected me and kicked me out and stuff like that mm. um i developed you know, I'd say that an intellectual project that I felt compelled to write, it was like my 23rd book, has become the most important thing I ever did in my career. And um, it also has linked my pastoral and my academic work because because I wrote this book, a lot of people have come to me and basically said, will you help pastor me through my crisis of coming out or of being kicked out of my church or trying to figure out who I am, you know, so... You know, uh, it's been an amazing 
totally unexpected journey. I could never have anticipated what happened. Wow. I have so many questions. Go for it. Well, my first question is, did you anticipate when you started writing this book and sharing your thoughts with the world that it would be your most important book thus far? No, I had no idea. No. Could so you not know, just like another book you're putting out there, which is going to be helpful in some ways. I mean, well, I knew that it was going to be controversial. I hoped that it might help evangelicals think about this issue better than they had been. Mm. My immediate trigger was I kept going to meetings where even if the subject was not LGBT inclusion, it kept coming up, you know, because everybody was uneasy with it. And there was a lot of pent up need to think thoughtfully about it. And so I felt like, man, well, if we're just going to talk around the edges about this, why don't we actually have the conversation, you know? Um, I also thought that my stature in the evangelical world and as an academic, that people might say, huh, let's have this conversation. And sometimes they have, but a lot of times it was fingers in the ear, forget about it, you know. So no, I could not have anticipated that it would have the impact that it had. Um, were, you, were you shocked when people, like, it sounds like you kind of expected, hey, I've got a history, I've developed a reputation, I've been consistent, I've, you know, that should bear some kind of at least logical consideration for like listening to your thoughts and then i'm assuming you still just had people who like the moment you shared what you were saying just discredited everything you, you right uh, was that shocking or were you expecting that well you know um one of the things i've reflected is that there are certain kinds of honor and privileges that go with being a published academic right you know um we're so glad to present to you today the Reverend Dr. David Gushy, the author of blah, 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 you know, and and there's respect, honor, and privilege. Um, and, and all of that meant, or all of that counted for nothing when the book came out. It could, what had been given could be snatched away in an instant. And but I concluded at a spiritual level through a lot of pain, two things. One was honor, status, and privilege can be spiritually and morally dangerous. And that having them taken away was good for me. Um, the other was this gave me just a bit of the taste of what it felt like maybe to be an LGBTQ person uh, treated contemptuously by others. So I felt I, I was able to taste the bitter taste of rejection. And that made me more able to understand the, the woundedness of the people that I was writing for and about. And then also I, as, as I read Jesus's story in the, in the gospels, he also stood in solidarity with those who were pushed to the margins. He also was treated contemptuously um, for doing so. And so I really, I, I felt not overstating this claim, but I just felt like I was where Jesus would want me to be. Wow. Yeah, I love that. This next question I have for you, I don't, <clears throat> I think there was a moment for a couple of moments for me when I was looking into theology and how the Bible had been weaponized against people like me, started pulling it apart. <clears throat> I had this, I have a couple moments where I was like, 
my mind changed. I was like, oh, I'm not just twisting scripture. This is actually not what the Bible's talking about. That was a life-changing realization. When you were doing your work, when you set out to write this book, I'm assuming there was probably a moment or a few moments where your your mind changed, right? Like I'm assuming being raised in the evangelical world, you were taught all the anti-gay rhetoric coming from scripture, right? And so I wanted to know if you're willing to share and if you remember what were those moments? What was the thing that like was the line of demarcation where you realize like, oh no, I disagree with, you know? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually give a talk. I did one this weekend in uh, in uh, Pasadena, California area that's called 10 Steps and How I Changed My Mind. Um, and uh, I mean, the beginning of it was a process I was you might say I was softened up by for the first time in my life in my mid 40s really getting to know lots of queer Christians and ex-Christians right mm. um and hearing their stories and seeing their suffering and also their faithfulness to Christ some of them who were still in the church um I I was made ready for change at that point you know um when I when I wrote the book, what was interesting, because it began as a series of articles, I did not know what the outcome of it was going to be when I started. I didn't like, know, you know what your you didn't know what your conclusions were going to be. I did not know. Wow. I, I said, well, let's try this. And so it's like a step at a time. Um, and that's one reason why I think the book ended up working so well is because people could say, yeah, okay, I'm with you through chapter one. Okay, I'm with you through chapter three. Cool. Uh, I'm up to chapter five. Got it. I talk about forks in the road. Are you with me so far? Good. Okay, let's keep going. Um, uh, it was when I got into the, um, you know, the, the clobber passages um, that I had never studied closely. That I can, I there there was this first sense of actually there's not that many of these, and they're more debatable than um, I had known. Uh, so. So that was that was significant. Um, but when I looked at them as a whole, there was this moment where I said, you know what? Fundamentally, the Bible theme, the biblical theme that matters the most here that has to be dealt with is the theme of what did God intend in creation for sexuality and for gender? In other words, the theme was of creation. And then I had this and that most conservatives have in their mind an account from the book of Genesis, God made them male and female and male for female. And however biblically illiterate a lot of people are who claim to be evangelicals, that's still somewhere in their in their uh, imagination. Mm. And so I began thinking about, oh, this is really like a book of Genesis problem, okay? And then I thought, oh, I know a little bit about book of Genesis problems because I had studied some of them, like uh, young earth creationism. And uh, I remember being in a debate with a guy who said, you know, climate change, God promised never to let climate change affect the planet because he said he would never again send a flood in Genesis nine or whatever, you know, um, or the teaching about strict female subordination because Eve sinned, right? In other words, this was a, a Genesis problem. It was a faith and science problem. Um, so that was a big moment. But then I also realized, you know, this is also, this is more like 
when Peter in Acts chapter 10 was instructed by the spirit to go to Cornelius, to go with Cornelius and his people and to enter his house and, and to baptize him and to share fellowship with him. And there's that line where he says, God has taught me not to, not to view anyone as unclean. Um, and then finally, my dissertation was on the Holocaust. To study the Holocaust as a Christian, you learn about 2,000 years of Christian anti-Semitism. That anti-Semitism was originally based in a reading of the Bible in which the Jews were a problem because they rejected their own Messiah. Mm. And here's this verse, and here's that verse, and here's that verse that was enlisted to hurt Jewish people for 2,000 years. And the church didn't really change its mind about anti-Semitism as a whole until after the Holocaust. Um, and then I thought, oh, okay, so the church has gotten it wrong before. And then could I think of any other examples where the church had gotten it wrong? Yeah, a bunch of them. <laughs> Notably, slavery. Right. How about the colonization of the, of the Americas? Um, and so I said, a relatively small number of Bible passages have been read in such a way as to harm millions of people in violation of the best moral teachings of the church and the example of Jesus, which makes this like that. This is like the Bible supporting slavery. This is like the Bible supporting anti-Semitism. This is one of those, I say in changing our mind, this is one of those cases where we must acknowledge that the church has gotten it wrong. And once that all snapped into place for me, um, there was no going back. What was your emotional response to that realization? Um, kind of shock and awe. Awe? Uh-huh, because, I mean, it's a pretty big deal as a Christian ethicist to say it is time for the church to change its moral teaching about something big. It's a lot of responsibility, and you better get it right. And there's going to be people who are going to tell you from the beginning you have not gotten it right. Um, but but eventually, it was also celebration. Because, because I knew that what we were doing as church, as evangelicals in particular, was harmful. That was documented. Psychological consequences, broken families, stuff like that. Uh, wounding people routinely. It's, it was not a, it was not a bug. It was, it was a feature of the teaching, and to be able to realize, you know, we don't have to teach that. In fact, we need to not teach that, and and we can we can bring reconciliation and healing, and everybody being included on equal terms. Eventually, I got to celebration. I remember I wrote. I think it's in, it's in changing our mind. I say something like. Once you come out on the other side of examining those passages, it's like a sunny day on, in a grassy field and everything is fresh and new and you can start again. And that's how it felt and that's how it continues to feel. But, but I would say that I continue to be discouraged by the millions of Christians who are unwilling to, unwilling to reconsider and the harm that continues to be done. In fact, in some cases, doubling and tripling down right now. Right, totally. Was there a part of you that was like, 
whether it was dread or fear, like, oh, this is going to ruin me. Was there a party that's like, I won't recover from this? Um, when I was getting pounded on social media by by every kind of troll, every kind of right wing Christian, um, and most hurtfully, when a couple of my friends came after me, like who used to be friends, I used to work with them, and uh, my best friend uh, felt the need to break the friendship over this. Um, wow. So um, there were there was lost sleep. There was, you know that. We, you know, kind of sense of, yeah, there was some dread. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's, what's the, what's the email going to bring tomorrow? You know, but, uh, but doing the right thing and being sure of it. Um, I don't know. I believe in conscience. I believe in the Holy spirit. And I believe that I, I did what I was led to do. And so, um, any social media firestorm or any moment of transition where people come at you it doesn't last forever they find a new target in six months or six weeks or whatever you know somebody else is the one who's getting the attention and so i eventually i wrote it out and and started entering into a different life i should say just to be uh fair i didn't lose my church because my church was going along on this journey with me towards inclusion so my my local baptist congregation in fact, it was there. It was almost like my process was a part of their process and theirs was a part of mine. So I didn't lose my congregation and I didn't lose my job because I was at a school where academic freedom was respected. So if you can, and my family was with me. So if you can keep your family, your church and your job, that's the core stuff. And the other stuff is marginal relative to that. Totally. And then, by contrast with many, many people I know who lost all of it alienation from family alienation from church and, and loss of job i mean that's so disorienting right also i didn't lose my faith and i know that for many lgbt christians coming out and wrestling with these issues and being rejected and treated so badly faith itself begins to be compromised or, or wounded and um my faith was changed but it wasn't hurt you know yeah. wow. i would say my evangelical identity was eventually abandoned though my work since then Partly has been about rethinking what life is like on the other side of evangelicalism. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a question I have is what, in what ways did this book impact your career? Like what, in what ways did it change the kind of work that you do? Has it changed? It has. Yeah. Um, well, one community with its opportunities was completely lost another community with its opportunities was was gained um I'll, I'll you know so just as an example i have a textbook called kingdom ethics that the two best-selling books of my career are kingdom ethics and changing our mind <laughs> um kingdom ethics happened first 2003 um it sold thousands of copies was used all over the world when i wrote changing our mind kingdom ethics was in revisions and intervarsity press said we cannot publish you anymore because intervarsity is a as an evangelical organization that won't move yeah. so i lost that contract wow. but it was handed to erdman's erdman's published it and but i did lose a lot of my audience right uh okay so losses like that i was scheduled to to be given an award 
uh, and featured lectureship in Texas, the award and the lectureship disappeared overnight. Things like that, right? Okay, so that happened. We we praise you. We want you to no, never mind. Okay, right. On the other hand, um, uh, I've been invited to to be in conversations with um, predominantly LGBTQ Christian audiences, or to to help congregations make their transition to inclusion. Here's my favorite story of this type. In 2015, when the Supreme Court was about to finalize its gay marriage decision, um, I was invited to Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, which is Episcopal Cathedral, a strong uh, gay population in that cathedral. And they said, okay, Supreme Court's gonna decide, we ask you to come and speak to us on the night after that decision. If they, if they vote no, you can lead us in our lament. If they vote yes, you can lead us in our celebration, but we want you in the room with us that night. And the, the music that night was provided by the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. Um, I learned at the reception that the director at that time of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus was a, was a former Texas Southern Baptist music minister who had been kicked out, of course, because he came out. I found that so interesting. So anyway, the Supreme Court voted yes, and it was a celebration service. But I mean, I would never have been in rooms like that. I would never have been getting to know the the fine people of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. Um, so, and I, like I said earlier, to be with those who have been rejected um, and to be welcomed as a, a pastoral presence with them that's the sweetest ministry I've ever done in my life. Wow. Why is that? Because that's where Jesus would be found. Hmm. I mean, people who've been, had all kinds of hateful things said to them, be kicked out of their families, broken in so many ways by the church, um, and, and to find a community and to serve alongside, but also there's a mutual comfort there too. And one of the reasons I'm invited in those rooms is because this was a very public thing that happened when this book came out and anybody who was paying attention knew the crap I was taking. Um, and so it's like, as the, as the kids say, I've got the receipts, right? And, uh, <laughs> Because I've got the receipts, there's respect. Yeah. And um, yeah, you, you paid a price to stand for us. And will you come out and hang out with us? You know? Wow. Yeah. yeah. You earned your stripes. Yeah. 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 So, totally. It's been, it's been really special. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. Your family came with you. Did they change their minds as you were doing your work? Were they already there when you started? Like, what was that like? Um, one interesting wrinkle in my story is that I, I I am the oldest of four, three younger sisters after me. And my youngest sister uh, is out as a lesbian, but it took her into her 40s to come out. Um, and she was not the most influential relationship for me in this process. She actually kind of came out into the process, you might say. Um, and so um, we were raised Catholic and by the time our parents were in their 70s. They were pretty conservative, um, but they 
unlike some parents, they were able to flex and grow to accept Katie for who she was and to support her uh, in her relationships. Um, and uh, so, so in, in, in terms of my family of origin, it was actually a really sweet part of a journey of acceptance and uh, being a, a, a whole family, you know, on the same page. Wow. Um, my kids, uh, my kids really, really respected that their dad was breaking with the subculture in which I had ra- in which we had raised them um, because they saw how much this, they saw what was at stake here and they supported what I was doing, you know? So, yeah, my wife struggled a little bit, both theologically, but also because she saw how much it was disrupting my life and and how much sleep I was losing and, and my friendship losses. And so she she hurt for me. And there was a kind of a protective instinct too, you know, like wow. you really have to do this, can't you know? And, but you know, I I wrote my dissertation, I mentioned about the Holocaust. Specifically, it was about Christians who rescued Jews during the Holocaust. And I've written about admirable moral leaders like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Luther King and such. So I already had a built-in kind of uh, radar related to here's the kind of people that I admire. Mm. And then you might say, maybe partly because of that training, I kind of knew what I needed to do once I discovered what was at stake and what was going on. Um, that doesn't make it easy, mm. you know? Um, so, yeah. But fortunately, I mean, the main structures of my life stood stood alongside me, which was crucial. Yeah, totally. Wow. <laughs> yeah. If you're, I don't know if you're able to share this, but I'm curious, you said your youngest sister who's, who came out as a lesbian kind of into the process, wasn't your most influential queer relationship. Who was like, I wondered, is there a, was there a relationship that compelled your perspective in your work or was this all? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so I, when I give this talk about this, I usually say I managed to get through the first 15 years of my career not knowing a single out gay Christian person, but that was because the context was so repressive that it was not safe to be out. You, you know all about that, right? I do. Uh-huh. Um, so when I moved to Mercer into Atlanta, the big city, not small town, um, and Decatur uh, outside Atlanta has a strong uh, LGBT population and a lot of church-going folk. So I joined this church called First Baptist Church of Decatur. I ended up starting a Sunday school class. Lots of people began coming, a disproportionate number of them who were LGBTQ. So, um, so for so now it was not occasional contact. This was week by week, day by day. Um, you know, these were out gay out. Christians yeah. mm-hmm. coming yeah. to a Baptist church. Yeah, because it, they thought that it would be safe because of the, who the pastor was at the time. And was he affirming? Uh, uh, yeah, her name is Julie Pennington oh, Russell. Sorry. And and she she is affirming. But it was like the church had not done anything official. So we kind of went on that journey step by step together from about 2007 forward. This was a Baptist church with a female pastor. Yes. Yeah. Okay. They got kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention for right. that. Right. Um, which again, 
I think when once you kind of you kind of end up in alienation from the hardline power structure that doesn't want you anyway, you know, it's and and you see how hateful it is and exclusionary it is. I don't know, maybe it opens you to some to thinking a little bit even more innovatively, right? Mm. But but this was people driven. So mm. um I remember the first gay couple that came to my Sunday school class, Chuck and Bob, and sweet, sweet um, 50-something couple that would have been married if they had been allowed to be and eventually, you know, were married. And um, and then, uh, you know, a lesbian couple, they were, there was, uh, there was a, a moment where they're trying to decide, they had an adopted daughter, trying to decide if we join the church, will we be welcome? They talked with me about that. And I said, I think you will be, but talk to the pastor and and they joined and there was no repercussions. It was kind of one step at a time like that. But the person I'd like to talk about the most, and he's given me permission to tell about him, is my friend Theron. Theron um, was raised in a denomination of Baptists so conservative that the Southern Baptists were seen as liberal, right? And um, he was a pastor in a fundamentalist church. He was a big deal in his world. Um, was married, had kids, came out, lost everything. Um, but, but in his subculture, it wasn't just, you're going to lose your job. And of course you're going to lose your marriage. It was also incomprehensible rejection. You know, you've become evil. You've turned to Satan. The worst rejection for him was from his own father. And Theron told me the story through tears one day about how his father wouldn't speak to him after he came out and that refusal to speak carried all the way through to his deathbed so that when Theron came to visit him in the hospital I said uh to the nurse could you tell my dad his son Theron is here and the nurse said I don't have a son named Theron and that was the end of that relationship um and I mean he died shortly thereafter and that was it that was the end Jeez. Um, but then you know I told Theron how remarkable that was. He said, David, it's been like this forever. He said, he's in healthcare. He said, I was the person sitting by the bedside of men dying of AIDS who were dying alone because their families had rejected them. Um, so the, the deep systemic wounding withdrawal of family um, goes back, you know, decades and decades and decades, right? Yeah. And so he knew from those experiences, I mean, what has to happen in your heart in the name of God for you to not care for your own flesh and blood when they are dying? Yeah. Dying. Yeah. My goodness. Um. So... You know, one thing that I learned in this process was that, um, well, I, I knew this, but I didn't know it to the core in the same way. Christianity can be the most powerful force for good. It can also be a very powerful force for harm if it is weaponized against groups of people that are believed to be wrong. And... Um, hmm. It isn't just we disagree with you politely. We are not so sure we support your choices. 
it's a more of an existential visceral uh condemnation unto death and um there is no worse way to treat a human being i think in may and unless it is to murder them mm. and um so I, when i hear the stories of people who have had that experience at the hands of their families my every fatherly and pastoral and christian impulse has me want to go stand with them and next to them and say no more of this so every time i have a chance to go speak somewhere i basically say no more of this this is wrong make it stop so was it theron then would you say was i would like say he was a really really important person the most single most important person there were others I remember there was a, a young man in our seminary that I teach in, very talented. Um, a key thing in the Baptist training process for, for really for most ministers and most churches is ordination. He was denied ordination because he was an out gay man. Hmm. And watching, I remember one time going to an ordination of one of his colleagues at school. He was there as an attendant, but he himself had been denied ordination just because he was gay. That was a moment that I I did I did not overlook. Um, but Theron, Theron is the most Bible thumping evangelistic Christian that I know in my subculture right now. He also happens to be a married gay man. I did his wedding to his husband, David, uh, about seven years ago now. Mm. And and uh, that was a moment <laughs> presiding at a wedding with about 300 people. That was my first and only gay marriage that I've performed so far um and uh it was it was you know a delight so yeah it's been quite a journey um yeah but Theron is is uh, you know the single most one but but just really so many people you know by now wow wow that's amazing I, that's really it's beautiful to hear thank you for sharing that I do want you to know, Mike, that change is happening. Um, uh, what I was doing in California this weekend was speaking at and preaching at a congregational church that has just decided to become open and affirming um, in a conservative community in California. And they're the, the first uh, affirming church in that community, um, uh, meeting people there um, who who find that church a refuge, you know. Um, so it is happening, but it is also happening that um, uh, homophobia and transphobia is being weaponized right now politically, which is making the environment scary and more dangerous for queer for queer people. So I feel like the fight, if anything, is is becoming more intense than it was even ten years ago when my book came out. Totally, it's fascinating. Ugh. Okay, so you, thank you for sharing that. You were one of the voices in the documentary, The Grove, that people may or may not know about. I definitely did some promoting for that film because I just loved what was presented in there. And you were such a major voice in the theme and message of that film. And at one point you talked about Genesis being a poem and that, you know, queer people's lives not lining up with this poem. We're making this, per we, we're oppressing and subjugating people to 
you know, impossible standards or what have you. Would you mind unpacking a little bit more of your thought there? I know you had like a minute in the documentary where you mentioned that, but I wanted to hear so much more from you if you have more to share there about yeah. that. Um, yeah, and I, I alluded to it a little bit earlier. Just Genesis 1 through 11 is a poem, epic kind of, especially Genesis 1 through 3. Um, written when the Jewish people were in exile in Babylon, um, trying to make sense of their journey against the backdrop of the entire journey of the planet as they were kind of mythologizing it, you know. Um, in the beginning, said this exiled people, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. Um, and God made all the creatures and the and the the natural created world, and and God made humanity in the image of God. Um, and that began as a man and a woman who were given to each other and they were fruitful and multiplied and populated the earth. And we are all their descendants, right? And there are implications there uh, that were actually drawn out of the New Testament. Like, like if we're all descendants of one couple, then we're all kin in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that any racial differences are incidental relative to our shared uh, humanity and our shared descent from Adam and Eve. Um, that's there's actually a, a couple of places in the New Testament where that is alluded to. Um, and uh, you might say the fragile beginnings of the of the planet and the and the the tiny seedlings of humanity gradually uh, grown over many millennia. Um, and in the creation story, we we have uh, fertility, abundance diversity, creativity, we have interdependence and relationship, but we also have alienation and brokenness in Genesis 3. Um, also, uh, the Jewish authors reworked some of the Babylonian creation myths. You see it in, um, uh, it's subtle, you have to have, to have read the Babylonian uh, Enuma Elish to know what they're doing, but they're kind of saying to the Babylonians, you have your story, but we have ours. And we reaffirm our story of creation and God, who God really is, one God, not many, and a God of, of mercy and love. Um, and But the fact that dropped into that story, God made them male and female. God said, be fruitful and multiply. And then, you know, Eve comes from Adam's rib and, and then the woman is given to the man and the two shall become one flesh. Um, it's a mythologized rendering of the beginnings of the human story and the beginnings of marriage and family. Um, but what what we did with it was to say um, there's no room in creation for anything other than a, what we understand to be a typically male or typically female person. And there's no room in creation for a male who finds partnership with another male or a female with another female, because that is how they are made. Um, and so on the basis of a 3,500 year old, I guess that would be a 2,500 year old poem, we looked at the real human beings in our families and in our churches. And we said, you are violating God's design and creation. Um, and because this was so incomprehensible to the straight and cisgender majority, and because it got tied to a, a theology of creation, 
it was seen as a profound threat to order and to morality and to God. And so, therefore, we need to exert every form of pressure available to us to get you to change. Um, and so I, I've written, I think I put this in, in Changing Our Mind. It's a fatal wrong turn to look at a person um, and to say, you are existentially so flawed that you, we cannot be in relationship with you unless you fundamentally remake yourself. Um, so you need to turn your sexual orientation around. And the way it will help you do that is by telling you you're going to hell if you won't, or by attempting exorcisms. I once heard from somebody in Australia who said that she had been subject to multiple exorcism attempts to beat the gay out of her. Um, or beatings, abuse. I once heard from a young lady in Southwest who said, when she came out as a lesbian tentatively in college, her father kicked her down the stairs and out the house. Um, or send people to reparative therapy, aversion therapy, and various types of things to, to try to make them feel the disgust for themselves that the family feels for them. So we psychologically torture people to try to make or remake their sexuality or their gender identity so that it can fit with our understanding of how to interpret a 2,500-year-old Genesis story and some other passages too. Um, and the reason there's so much suicidality and depression and, and so on is because it's torture. Um, and the amount of ego strength that is required Think of the 16-year-old who says, I think I might be gay, and all this pressure comes upon their heads. Mm -hmm. Think of the ego strength that is required to say, even though you parents upon whom I am dependent for everything, you who raised me, you who I love, you who provide my home, you who have provided my identity, even my name, and the core relationship of my life, I'm going to have to defy you here to remain in your good graces, that's very hard to do. Um, in fact, it's almost an impossible thing to ask of, a, of an adolescent. And so uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said in his ethics, I love his ethics text, it's not as well known as some of the other ones. He said, we need to respond to people in their concreteness, in their reality, not in our abstract vision of what we think a human being should be. We need to respond to people in the concreteness of who they are. And that's actually what I think Jesus did. Whenever he encountered people, he encountered them for who they were. And uh, he offered grace to them as they were. Um, and so that's, yeah. So think about the power to frame and name reality that the Bible has held. And I, I, my reality and my mental construct is so much still shaped by the Bible. And for those for whom that's still going to be the case, we have to help them read the Bible in such a way that they don't need to psychologically destroy their own children to be faithful to the Bible. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> totally. 
So what would you say to people listening now, like, especially like if this episode were to come across the lap of someone who's a Christian, not affirming, has just kind of coasted in this conversation, um, or maybe, you know, Christians who are like, kind of feel the tussle, like, oh, what do I do? I'm just kind of avoiding it because I don't know what to do. It feels like the Bible's clear. People I respect or love are saying otherwise, and they just kind of conveniently avoided it. What would you say to people in that position with the conviction you have and the work you've done? Um, you can't coast on this issue. Um, and you can't just decide not to decide. Eventually, somebody's going to come across your path who's going to need you to be clear. Um, it may be a grandchild. Uh, it may be a friend. It may be your own child. It may be you. <laughs> it may be your spouse who comes out one day when you didn't expect it. Um, we have a certain share of the human population that is LGBTQ. Just, it just is. And um, the old answers were misguided and hurtful. So do the homework. Talk to people who are out, who will talk to you about their story. Um, and, and ask, what I would ask to Christians, Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. I think more broadly, you can know it. You can know the impact of a teaching by its fruit. The bad fruit here is epic. Uh, given the centrality of love and the centrality of persons in Jesus ministry, um, the harmful person destructive implications of this teaching have to be taken seriously. So they could read my book, Changing Our Mind, but there's a bunch of other books out there uh, and, and podcasts and, and so on, and lots of LGBTQ people themselves who are telling their stories. Um, I would definitely say this. If you're listening to right-wing talk radio and being fed some kind of story about you know, predatory gay people trying to steal your children or, you know, whatever, you know, come back to reality and deal with real people <laughs> um, who who are really there with you, who are just trying to live their lives. Come out of the out of the fog and, and deal with the reality of people. Um, so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Love that's it. what I would say. Thank you. Love it. It's awesome. Agreed. Um, all right. So David, as we land this plane, what it sounds like you do travel and speak places you do engage in spaces. Is that true? Like, yeah. you're, so um, do you, are you available to be booked places for people to have you come and speak in their area? I am. Yeah. Okay. Usually somewhere once or twice a month. Um, people can reach out to me at my, um, uh, through my website, uh, davidpgushy.com. I also uh, write about all kinds of different things. And so I, I have a sub stack and you can sign up to be on that mailing list. Um, and the other things that I've worked on uh, can be found there too. Um, I have a book coming out this fall on a completely different subject. Well, not completely different. It's called Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. And we're going to talk about that hopefully uh, in a later session together. Yeah. Um, so it's about how Christians should approach the political arena as another election year comes around. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm at heart, I'm a Christian pastor and a Christian ethicist. I want to help Christians be the most faithful followers of Jesus that we can be. And uh, in all different kinds of ways, that's what I try to do. I love it. 
Right. So I'm going to provide the links you just mentioned in the show notes below. So those of you listening or watching, you can grab those and access that. Um, so David, my, my podcast is called Confessions of a Reformer. I sometimes like to ask the people I'm interviewing, what is a confession they would have in their line of work as they've wrestled through and faced things that they have in their unique spaces? What is, is there a confession you'd care to share of like something that you come came across or have wrestled through that you're like, I'm not sure about this, or I don't like that. I think this, or I don't believe, you know, just something that you're like, not sure about. I just love providing space for us to get to share some of the human part of our process. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to answer when people ask me this question. Should I stay in a non-affirming church if it otherwise is a good and wholesome place for me and my loved ones? Because, because I don't want to encourage ever more people just to leave church. Hmm. Because I think we need community and Christians need to be in community, right? Hmm. Um but on the other hand, however polite, usually something happens in which a very vulnerable person gets wounded. You know, like, you know, you take, say, the parents of grown kids and they, they're in a church that's not really affirming, that's not affirming, or, or, or at least not fully affirming. And then maybe college kid comes home or, or grown kid comes home for a holiday and there it is something is said you know some some bomb is dropped right um so so i confess i don't really know how to answer that question or i vacillate about it but but on the main thing i'm clear it is time you say you're a reformer i'm a reformer too it is time for us to reform this teaching so that all of god's children are included on equal terms and stop the hurt as soon as we can. Wow. Totally. Love it. Agreed. David, thank you so much for being here. Um, everyone go check him out. Check out his Instagram. Check out his links, his Substack. Invite him to your church. Love. We need people like David doing that work of helping the existing church become inclusive to the queer community. Like that's so important and necessary. David, thank you for doing the work that you're doing and being the person you are in the arena that you're in. I feel super thankful for the work and the sacrifices you've made for people like me. Thank you for doing that. We need people like you talking to those people to help them humanize, you know, a whole chunk of our population. So thank you so much. I really appreciate what you're doing. You're very welcome, Mike. I'm glad to meet you. Glad to know what you're doing. Um, oh, by the way, I have an unusual name, so it's not hard to find me. At DP Gushy is where I am on all the social media. So DP Gushy, look me Love it. That's awesome. All right, you guys, thanks for being here. We'll see you next time. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to dive deeper, check out MikeMayashiro.com.